0: The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We need to find a way to get back to baseline and look at, okay, who is God? What has He done? Who is He making us to be in Jesus? And how do we experience what it's like to be with this God on a regular basis? That's really what we're trying to do here. So when we were looking through this series, All Things New, the, the main question we're trying to go at, the main theme is, who did God create us to be to experience him? How did he create us to experience his world? And how is this world and us being renewed in Jesus? So here's kind of like the main outline, if we can put these kind of four things up. The series structure, just so you guys have an idea of where we're going. Creation, that's what we're looking at today and this next couple of weeks. The decreation of the world and through sin, weakness, uh, death the renewal of all things in Jesus, and then the final glorification of things in Jesus at the end. So this, is, this story is going to take us all the way up to, to Christmas. So we're going to finish this up by looking at what Christmas, how Christmas and all of those, uh, the celebration of Christmas land us in an anticipation of God making all things new in the final return of Jesus when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do between now and Christmas. This is going to take us all the way up to then. Um, and just so you're aware, I know we're starting out in Genesis 1 here, and I know you're all immediately going to be like, what's Jacob going to say about, like, science and creation and all that stuff? And I'm just going to disappoint you now. I'm not going to say much. <laughs> um, but we are going to start preaching through Genesis in January. We're going to preach through Genesis next year, just as kind of like a, so you know where we're going. And equally, when we get to that question in January, I'm going to disappoint you there too. So um, we're going to try to speak to that stuff, but that's not my main focus. We're trying to understand who God is and what this world does as it reflects who God is, what the the purpose of the world is. So we do have a biologist in our congregation, (laughs) and she can speak to all that stuff. I do not have a PhD in biology, so (laughs) anyhow. I'm just going to say, what we're going to do now is we're going to look at this first chapter in Genesis, and we're really going to be asking, what happened at the very beginning when God created everything? How do we understand what God did? God created the world, as you can see in the way I read this and the way we prayed over it, God created the world joyfully so that he could dwell with us. God created the world. He was happy and joyful when he made the world And we're going to look at that, and we're going to see how that unpacks in these four points. So here's the main point of this passage that we're going to be looking at. What we want to do this morning is we want to recalibrate towards God as a joyful, life-giving creator of your humanity. God was happy. He was happy about creating you, and he was happy to dwell with you. So God, we want to recalibrate kind of the foundations of how we understand our life and the world around us by seeing this recalibrating towards God as our joyful, life-giving creator of our humanity as we work through, these, uh, through this opening chapter. As I said, we will again come back to chapter one and we'll preach through it a little bit more slowly in January, but we're going to kind of lift out four major ideas here as we try to understand how do we find renewal in this God together. So we're going to look at the first thing here. In the beginning... The world was good. That's the first thing we're going to see here in this passage. The first thing is, in the beginning, the world was good. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens to everything that creeps in the earth and everything that has breath. I have given every plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. This is the culmination of this creation week. And all through creation week, there is this rephrase, this rephrase that goes through all of it. God says, it is good. And the final one is, it is very good. He says, it is good seven times through, the whole, through, through creation process, which is a significant mo- uh, point in kind of the way you think about Bible stuff. In Bible stuff, like we don't get like, like wigged out about like numbers big time, but seven's a big number. Seven happens as an expression of holiness and perfection and goodness. It's a kind of like a number that communicates joy and delight. So here we have God saying, the world at every stage in its creation is good in his eyes. So we can go to the next slide here. We can see a little bit of a structure. There's a structure to this goodness in God's, the God, way God, the way God made this. By the way, real quick, if you have questions... You can text that number. I'll answer them after the service. Happy to do that. Um, If you ask me biology questions, um, I will disappoint you there too. Um, Day one, God creates light. But you notice in the structure of creation, it's matched by day four where he creates the heaven lights, the moon and the stars. And that's one of my funny phrases in Genesis. It's like, God made the sun and the moon and the stars. (laughs) And you're like, there's one sun, there's one moon, and 100 billion trillion stars. (laughs) And it's just like a throw-out phrase. But here we have God creating light. And then on the fourth day, he creates the, the, the objects that reflect that light. Um, day two, he creates what's called the firmament, which, which is like conceived as like the waters above the earth, and the separation of the waters on day two. But that's given form and substance in day five when it's matched by God creating the birds for the sky and God creating the, the, bird, the animals in the water. So there's a matching going on here between the days. And then the creation of, in day three, earth and sea and vegetation. And then here we have day six, land animals and man and woman. There's a matching of the way these, these days are created. So they're created so that the, the general idea is created on these first three days. And then the specifics of how those, those are filled out in the world are created on the second three days. And then the final day, the Sabbath, actually does not have there is evening and there is morning. It's an unending Sabbath. It's a communication. There's something still to do, and we're going to get to that. There is here at the very beginning of the story this idea that God creates, and he creates good, he creates joyfully, he creates with order, and he creates with order to be able to dwell with his people because he really, really, really enjoys that he made the world because it reflects who he is, this luscious, I mean, have you ever, like, watched, like, nature videos, and you're just like, okay, like, you know, like, cows are cool, but, like, you get, like, these, like, crazy birds that have, like, crazy, like, feathers, and, like, mating rituals, and all this stuff, and you're just kind of like, God just decided to make it to show off, you know? (laughs) He just, like, he just made it that way just to say, like, I'm, just, I'm that type of God. I love this place. This place reflects who I am. He's joyful and good. Now, what I want to do is I just want to put a little period right here, and I want to step back and ask you to consider. We're looking at this as, you know, 21st century, you know, people in the modern world, and we read it through a certain lens. We ask certain questions. That you have to consider who are the original people that got this letter, basically this book. They were the people that were just saved out of Egypt. Moses had led them out of Egypt. They plundered Egypt. They had all these ten plagues, all that stuff. They walked through the 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 Red Sea. It was miraculously split open. They walked through. They're standing on desert. They go up to a mountain. These are people. Moses writes this book to. They've just been freed from slavery from their oppressors. They're tired. They're scared. They're exhausted and they're done with all the politics of their day. Does that sound, does that sound familiar? <laughs> and their main question they're wondering is, how do we know who our God is and whether he's stronger than those gods we just left? How do we know who this God is? So when Moses writes the story of Genesis 1, he has in the back of his mind all of the mythology and theology that they would have heard from their Egyptian priests and temples and all that stuff, like all the stuff that would have been in the Egyptian world that would have been used to oppress them, to oppress the Hebrews that God had just saved. God, uh, Moses has all that stuff in the background of his mind and it shows up in this story. So you know how like some songs have like background meetings that you didn't, you weren't aware of. Like, you know, like Coldplay's yellow, you know, you know, the backstory is in that song. His mom had jaundice, right? I took a line, took a line for you. Yellow, that song. His mom was yellow in the hospital and he had to give a blood transfusion to save his mom's life. That was what the song, like this iconic song, that's what the song was about. In uh, hip-hop and rap, there's this whole concept of like a diss track. You know, there's a whole thing going on right now, I saw it on my Twitter feed, of uh, Andre 3000, uh, Drake, and Kanye and they've got like this diss track thing going on, or Drake released this diss track or whatever. I don't know what's going on. If Kanye is involved, I'm immediately on his side, but I don't want to understand the details. <laughs> but you know what a diss track is, right? So a diss track is where you're throwing down and, 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 and dissing, slamming somebody else um, in the way you're, you're telling a poetic story. In Genesis 1, that's exactly what's going on with the Egyptian gods. So here's a little backstory on the Egyptian gods. The, the Egyptian story of creation, first of all, it starts out quite literally with the phrase, in the beginning or in the first parts, there are four main deities. Well, there's eight deities, and there's four pairs of male and female deities. Uh, one set represents order. One represents chaos. Um, and here's uh, the Hebrew renditions of their names Goes something like this. The god um, Hehu, his name reflects the phrase from Hebrew, empty formlessness. Um, Keku, one of the gods, his name represents darkness. Noon, one of the Egyptian gods, watery deep, the Hebrew phrase. Um, Amun, one of the Hebrew, uh, Egyptian gods, his name comes out, wind of God or spirit of God. And then, in the first created act of these gods, what do they do? They create light, which ultimately becomes the sun god, Ray, whose little princeling under him becomes Pharaoh. So... If we were to go to the slide where I have Genesis 1 through 3, I have the next one over. Here we have God telling his version of the creation story, and you're beginning to see there's a diss track going on here. In the beginning, our God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. That's one of those Egyptian gods' names. And darkness, again, another one, was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, what's going on when I point this out? What's going on is that Moses, and God through Moses, is saying to his people, I am so good. I am so good joyful and my creation of this world that when I tell my story, I want you to know those Egyptian gods, they got nothing on me. They are owned by me. They're my pet animals. They did exactly what I wanted them to do. And they were created, whatever they are. I created this whole thing and they, I can throw their names in my story and show how I'm above all things. And my desire for this world is that you know that it is created good. It's not this conflict between chaos and disorder or chaos and order. It's not like a conflict between these things. It is me. I create things. I create them good. I create them because I enjoy my creation. So here you have God saying, no, the world is not indifferent and formless. It's not this whole thing that just kind of happens. I did it. I enjoy this. I enjoy this place I've created to be with you. This is my home. This is my place. This is kind of like, um, have you guys seen this picture of the, this? uh, can we go to the next slide of this picture here? Have you guys seen this before? Have you seen seen this? So on the left was the original fresco in this this, uh, town in Spain or whatever. And then somebody who didn't know what they were doing, uh, they needed to fix it, so that's the middle one and then they go over, and they totally ruin it. That's what it looks like now. They tried to make over the the original. They tried to, like, make it look like the original. See, this is a little bit like what creation's like now. We need to remember. We can take it down because I'm going to laugh too hard about this. So when we read Genesis 1, we need to be reminded that there is a beauty underneath all the mess of this world around us. There is a beauty of God creating the world good to be with him and to enjoy him and to dwell with him. He created it good. Chaos, I would just say, the current political chaos and all the things going on in the world, whatever your political perspective is, it really doesn't matter because everybody thinks um, this is chaotic (laughs) wherever you're at on the spectrum. That's not the very nature of the world. The very nature of the world is that God created this whole thing good. And he enjoyed making this world. He enjoyed making it so that he could be with us. We all tell these little creation stories in our minds when we say, well, that's just the way it is. If there's any sort of thing that you kind of mark as like, well, that's just the way it is, that's just the way it's always going to be, that sort of thing, that's not the sort of story that God tells us in the beginning. He says it's good, it's right, it's joyful, and he's made us to dwell with him. And it will not always be this way. So we're going to go on to the second, second point in this passage here. Uh, I'm going to pull out the second phrase here and we're going to say, in the beginning, not only was the world good, the world was diverse. Verse uh, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, through creation, you have these binaries of how God creates things. He creates light and darkness. He creates sun and moon. He creates sky and earth. He creates, you know, birds that fly, birds that swim. Or not birds that swim. Well, I guess there are some birds that swim. But, you know, fish that swim, right? You've got these binaries that go on, right? You've got rain, You've got uh, vegetation. And then he gets to the final day, and he has, I'm going to create mankind or humankind in my image, male and female, he's going to create them. they are um, a binary that reflects the rest of God's creative design. See, God created male and female to reflect his diversity. God created man and woman to create who were f- created fully equal. You'll notice in these verses... Male and female, he created them, and he goes on to give them the commission to rule and have dominion over the whole earth. He doesn't say, well, I want, to, I want the guy to do it first, and I want the lady to kind of do the cleanup. He says, no, I created men and women to both bear this responsibility equally in my image to reflect who I am, right? In the ancient world, you would create an icon to reflect who that God was, and you put him in a temple. Well, when, the words, when he's using this word image, that's actually the word icon, right? You think about like little Buddha icon that you can get in a gift shop or whatever. You're like, well, what is this for? Well, whatever with the, with the Buddhism. But when God creates his world, he creates his place and then he does put, here's a picture of me. Hey, selfie, put it right in the world. Here's a selfie of God and it's an image, man and woman, both bearing his image together. God, God creates us have diversity among us. So this image captures the diversity that God loves and delights. Male, male and female, he is created. And then in the order of things, um, I, the funny part to me is that, you know, people kind of play up in chapter two when woman appears and she's like, oh my gosh, this is a man responding to women. Women are so beautiful, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Ladies, you're beautiful, whatever. But the point of that is to say when, when the image of God shows up in its fullness, men and women together, The first words are poetic response. I can't even say what it's like to see somebody creating the image of God. I have to use art to reflect who they are. I have to create something new and fresh using culture and art to reflect the glory and the dignity and honor of the person that I'm seeing. I have to respond to seeing who God is by celebrating through creating artwork. That's why it's so important that the very first words out of a man's mouth are poetry. Not because it's like, oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. It's because, oh my gosh, this is what it's like to see somebody reflect the image of God. So much dignity and value. Let me speak artwork. (laughs) Let me throw down some lines to say how good God is in this diversity that he's created. See, this is very different. It's very different than the world that we live in right now. Because when we're talking about this sort of stuff, this male and female created in God's world, and I, what we're thinking about is identity language. Somebody who's created because they are the image of God, not because they've discovered it, but because they are. God created you to reflect his image. And we see this, we, we have what, what I would contrast this with of in, our, in our culture today, um, a performance identity, right? Somewhat, something in a range of like a performance identity. Now, I know we're gonna kind of get into what that means exactly, but What I mean is that we act like X to become like it. Like we act like we're we're something to become it. So you do this when you look through your social media feed. You'll look through the social media feed and you'll see, there is a picture of Jacob with his kids. Aren't they just so cute? The kids. <laughs> just so happy, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, you don't know. Like 10 minutes later, yes, that picture was happy and all that stuff. And then 10 minutes later, I'm ranting or raving about something that's gone on or been broken or whatever. Right? You think that because I performed this physical act or this social act of per- pretending to be f- happy for this one millisecond of a picture, that therefore we have achieved happiness at all times and are perfectly happy. Right? We do this when we just kind of assume that, well, look, there's a happy couple. Like, they're in this picture, and look how happy they are. And then suddenly we're shocked when we realize six months later he's been cheating on her, and they're getting divorced. Because we think, well, they've performed this, this social thing of being happy. Why aren't they happy? Well, it's because you can't perform your way into an identity. You can't perform your way into being happy. You can perform happiness, but you can't perform your way into being happy. Similar way, you see this with um, with all the kind of like all the political stuff going on this last year. You have people who are like social media influencers, like they like walk, like you've got videos of people like walking up and like holding up a like um, a Black Lives Matter sign, or they're fi- fixing something. They'll do like the performance act of justice or whatever, protesting, but then they get in their you know, their car and they drive off because they actually aren't committed to it, they're just performing the act for the social media post so they can get their sort of like performance piece. We do this all the time in our culture. We do this similarly with gender. We perform to become more like one gender or another as though that can change who we are. You see, in the ancient world, there was this idea that gender was a spectrum. And you were born male or female. Women were at the bottom. Born male, you're born right around the middle. And then you have to perform all these ways to become more, you know, more machismo, <laughs> to become more masculine. What we find here in Genesis, I'm not going to get into all the, all the stuff that you know. I'm not going to take the bait on any of that stuff. But what's important here in Genesis is that we see that God creates people, and he creates the world, and he gives them an identity. You're created a woman, you're created a man, and that's good in and of itself as a reflection of his glory in you. You do not have to do more things to become more masculine. You don't have to do more things to become more feminine. You are reflecting the image of God by your very DNA to reflect God as somebody created as a woman to be more, to be feminine. You're created as a, as God, uh, in God's image as a man to be masculine. You live out your identity. You do not perform to get your identity. It's a graciously given reality in your life. It's something that's given to us. It's not something that we necessarily discover. Now, there's certainly aspects in which we kind of like learn to understand ourselves better. That's obvious. But living out our identity is something that we receive and live out of. I long... I'd, I was just this last week... I. I can get on a rant on this stuff. <laughs> I long for us to be a community where women feel empowered to be the God-given, creative forces of nature, God-reflecting women that God has created you to be simply because you have dignity and honor and value and worth because you are a woman, not because you have to be something else, you have to do something else, you have to achieve to some status, and somewhere for men. I want our men to live out being a man in Jesus, just simply because that's who God has made you to be. And you don't have to lift weights and smoke cigars and do all the crazy stuff, you know, that some people do. (laughs) I'm not naming any names, but (laughs) I'm just going to say, those people are ridiculous, just like me. (laughs) culture shapes how we look about masculinity and femininity. But at the end of the day, what we're saying here is that God created a diversity in his expression of who he is to say, this is good and right and wonderful. And there is nothing that you have to achieve to be able to be more male or more female. It is a gracious identity. This is similar to, for example, when we get into the New Testament later on, that's why the main indicator of your identity in Jesus is what? In Christ, period. That's the New Testament identity. You are in Christ. You're male, female, whatever. God has created you, man or woman, to be, more importantly, in Christ. And that is your identity. And you live out being in Christ as a man or a woman. But you are in Christ as your primary identity. It is given. (laughs) It's not something you achieve. You don't earn yourself into being more in Jesus, right? You're either in or you're not. And when you're in, God, help me to live out and just be who you've created me to be. See, there is, there is a gracious way in which God comes to dwell with his people. He doesn't say, earn it, and then I'll live with you. Be more, and then I'll live. No, he comes and creates. He creates diversity that he enjoys, and then he lives with us in that diversity to be who we are in Jesus. Are we cool? All right, we're going to move on. We're going to pick up a third one here. In the beginning the world was purposeful. No, the third one back. Next one back. Here we go. In the beginning, the world was purposeful. Do we have that other slide there? It should be there. So here's what God says. Verse 29 to 30. And behold, I have given you every plant yielding fruit and seed and face of the earth, and you shall have them for food. And every bird of the heaven and every creeping things on the earth and everything that has breath and every plant, every green plant for food. Let's see. I'm getting a little thrown off. My slide should have had it up there. But verse 28. That's what I should be looking at. Sorry. I should look at my notes a little better. Sorry. <laughs> verse 28. And God bless them, male and female. Here we are. You guys tracking with me in the Bible? I lost my place for a second. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds and of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. Right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is called the creation mandate. This is where God says, I've created you. I've created you with a purpose. But I've created you, just so you know, Adam and Eve, I've I've created you in this little square on the earth, and this is Eden, but here's what I need you to do. I need you to take this everywhere else. I need you to expand this little space of Eden right here, and it needs to be expanded over the whole earth. This is, in effect, Adam and Eve's job, their purpose was to reflect God by Edenizing to take Eden to the rest of the world, to take this place that was good and diverse and good and lush and holy and full of life, and say, "We need to take this and we need to expand this to the rest of the earth, right? That is the purpose that God created his people to have. The purpose of humanity is to take God's diverse, good gifts and spread them through the world. That means that in your very innate being, the way God has made you, God has gifted you in a way, God has gifted you in specific ways so that you can still participate in his Edenizing of the world. Now we're going to talk about how the fall and sin and weakness and death and all that stuff kind of frustrates those desires. But the purpose of the way you have been made and the purpose of the gifts that you have the purposes of your mental capacities and all of those things have been given to you so that you can help expand and Edenize the world around you, to, spend, to, to take this wonderful thing that God has created and spread it through the world. God's continual invitation to you is to join his purposes for the world in spreading his goodness. Now here is one of the rubs of what it means to be human today that is so difficult is that God has created us with this wonderful purpose to spread his goodness to the world. And yet how often do our own agendas hijack those purposes and gifts? Right, this is maybe where some of the more serious pain of our life has come from. We know that God's created us for a purpose. We yearn to be a part of something that beautifies the world around us. And yet how many of us have found, found ourselves to either be the victim or to be oppressed by some, some person's agenda, some company's agenda, some, maybe it's a previous church, or something where you just feel like, I've been hoodwinked, I've been hampered, I've been pushed down, I've been suppressed, I've not been able to do all that God has created me to do. We feel like we have been subjected to some type of chaos amidst the, uh, somebody else's agenda, or maybe it's your own. Maybe there's a chaos in your own life that just come about because you have been more committed to your own agenda for your life and subjecting the world to your agenda, using God's places, God's peoples, and God's things for your own purposes, right? That's what we call sin. (laughs) When you use God's things and God's people for your own purposes, that is always sin. And when we do that, we are subjecting our purposes, our purpose in life to our own agenda, and our own agendas always end up in some type of chaos and death. This is where one of the things that frustrates us is so often that we were created for a purpose to go somewhere and do something. And yet God, and his, God has allowed for our agendas to frustrate those purposes. Again, we're going to talk through some of these things. We're going to talk through some of these dynamics later on in the series. We're going to pick up here in the last point. We're going to look at the beginning. The, the world was our home. That's a slide here. So here we have Genesis one ten. Genesis 1.10. God created the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together, and he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work and all that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day for all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work and all that he had done in creation." See, there in verse 10, I want to pull out something here because this is, again, I want to pull back to our Egyptian background and just pull out this reality of what God has done here. Verse 10, the full verse, um, that verse 9 right before it, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And so here we have this dry land appear and God called the dry land earth and the waters he gathered together he called the sea. Here in the Egyptian mythology, here's how they created things. Right, you have, remember those those eight gods, those four sets? They, they said, in the beginning, create. And what happens at the very beginning? A little hill comes up out of the water in the Egyptian mythology. And on that hill, they, they place the first temple and the first priest. And you know what that first priest was? The Pharaoh, who is the son of the god Ray, the first day. Sun rises up, first day, there's a the sun. On his temple that sits out of the waters. Now, I'm just going to speculate a little bit here because I haven't been able to do, go through all the research. This is why I think pharaohs were buried in what pyramids. Here they are, have this little <laughs> this little hill that sits up out of the out of the land, and they've put the pharaoh right back where he belongs. Whereas in Egyptian mythology, they had three locations where all of the pyramids were. were were relegated, here in Genesis, we find that God has said that the whole earth is the product of his creation. Here we have God's life-giving temple in Eden coming out of the waters where he dwells with his people. Eden, uh, Eden was perceived as this temple where God dwelled with his people, so much so that later in the, in the biblical narrative, you know what the, the temples, how they're decked out? Anybody remember all this stuff? Temples are decked out with pomegranates <laughs> luscious fruits and vegetables all in, the, all in the columns and all that stuff. And what's put into the tapestry that hangs on in the inside of the temple? Stars and sky. That's why you have all these animals that are like in the temple. The temple that God create, that God gives to Moses and they, they ultimately make into the stone temple, it reflects Eden because God intends to dwell with his people again. It's a gracious place where God dwells with his people. And then what happens through the rest of the Bible. We see hills pop up all over the place through the Bible. Hills pop up all over the place. But there's one in specific that comes to mind here as we kind of close things out. Here at the end of Jesus' life, what does he do? Jesus walks up a dusty hill to the hill of death where he takes on what? He goes and stands on a tree hung between heaven and earth where he goes and takes the cup of death so that in his very, the very moment of his death he creates a temple of life for us to experience God's presence afresh with us. Here, Jesus, at the very moment of his death, is yet again imaging Genesis, this creation account. He He is reliving Genesis 1 in his death so that we can experience God's presence with us afresh, so that all the things that keep us from experiencing the goodness of this design here at the beginning of the Bible Jesus opens the door for us in his very death and resurrection to continue to experience the goodness of God with us, the diversity of God's gifts to us, the blessing of God's presence with us, the purpose of God's goodness and his mission through us so that we experience yet again this aching that we have in our souls to be satisfied with God being our home. Jesus accomplishes it, and he brings us back to Genesis to what we see here so that we yet again can experience the goodness of our God who's so happy to create us, who's so happy to gift us and make us different from each other, and he's so happy to redeem us and save us. You see, as we live in this chaotic world around us, we have this God who has created us, who loves to dwell with us and is eager to not only redeem us but to renew us from the inside out so that we experience fresh life in him. So I pray as we've been looking at Genesis 1 here that we would recalibrate towards our God as a joyful, life-giving Savior so we can find our humanity renewed in him. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire.